Hi, your Polygamy Podcast listeners. This is your host, Lindsay Hansen-Park. Just offering a trigger warning for this episode. This is part two of part one, and you can find part one on yearofpolygamy.com. And both episodes contain descriptions of more explicit sexual content, uh, anatomy, and masturbation. So probably not an episode to listen to with children in the room. And as always, if you haven't started the podcast in order, this series is meant to go in order. Start all the way back at episode one and make your way through the top. Enjoy part two of this episode with Roy Jeffs. So talk to me about your getting your call to Zion and what you knew about it at the time and what that experience was like. So if forward, fast forward, I guess, to 2006 after, I, I, I guess just just to just kind of clear up what happened back in 04. So I was separated from my mom for like, I think maybe a month, maybe two, um, or when I was 11. And, um, and that's when he finally... When I finally got to be back with my mom was when I was there in the house alone, um, where I was referring to that, um, where he had me go back to the Jeff's property. So that's when I was there um, in the house alone. So Um, really quick about that. Why were all the other kids gone? Well, so all the younger kids were down in Texas or wherever. He had he had um, some of the older kids he had taken to Texas but I don't know. It was just up to his discretion. I don't understand why he did. He would say, the Lord wants you to do this or the Lord wants you to do that. And and so he called me and, or called and had me transferred from my Uncle Leroy's house back to the Jeff's property. And he didn't, I mean, I was 11, so I don't remember the specifics of everything, but he, he just basically said, this is what the Lord wants you to do. And had me go back to the Jeff's property. And that was my first real um, experience with complete isolation as far as, you know, from siblings or anything like that. You know, and I think you're on to something about how he singled you out because of his own guilt. You, you might have represented his own shame. I mean, I think that, again, his pattern is this, right? I mean, the man is obsessed with confession, obsessed with sin, oh, yes. <laughs> obsessed with telling everyone that they're, that they're sinful. And really, I mean, what we know about human psychology is, especially a lot of shame research like Brene Brown, she's saying um, there's a lot of research to back up the fact that judgments that we have are based in our own shame triggers. Yeah. And it's really interesting that to see that your father, I mean, the man must have been, his shame must have been heaped upon him because... Well, well. Well, I can imagine he felt very shameful in a lot of ways because I wasn't the only one he abused. I mean, from from the time he was in his what in his in his late teens, early twenties. I mean, there's there's court documents that back this up. He was he was abusing his sisters, um, so there had to have been mountains of shame that maybe and maybe I in some way. Um, represented some of that too. I don't know. Maybe, maybe being a little kid glaring him in the face, like it was just glaring him in the face like that. I don't know. So I'm interested in really quick before we get into the Texas story, your resiliency, because it is very clear that your father singled you out and that he did make you sort of 
you know, the whipping boy for some of his shame. And yet, like, anyone that knows you, and I mean, I don't know you well, but you're so lovely and adjusted and smart and, you know, um, free thinking and wise. And even the way that you talk about your story, how did you, how did you resist some of that shame? Well, I internalized it for a long time and I, I, you know, I kind of really turned up the internalization, um, especially when he started, you know, publicly, multiple times publicly humiliating me in front of the whole family. Um, but I, I internalized it for a, for a long time. And I mean, I didn't really, I mean, even after I left, I, I just wanted to, you know, isolate myself and I didn't feel like I'm, I, I never, it did. I, I guess it wasn't until maybe, maybe until I went out, um, on, uh, CNN, um, that was kind of a turning point for me where it was once that broadcast, it was like, um, you know what, it's okay to, to accept this and accept that, um, that he was wrong, um, to, to, to treat you that way. It, it was that. And it was also, um, you know, the year previous when I found out about my sister's um, that was when I, that was the first time I wrote to my dad after leaving, um, and just challenged him on all of this. I says, why did you treat me this way? Why did you do this to me? And, and why did you make me feel so guilty growing up? And, you know, obviously no response, but I think, I think, um, you know, that liberated me quite a bit. Um, even though it was very scary and challenging, with the CNN special that came out. But, um, when my sisters confirmed, um, what had happened to them, um, and, and I had read a lot of evidence, evidence previous to that, that I was just like, yeah, yeah. You know, somebody, you know, I was major conspiracy theorist and I was like, yeah, somebody made that up, but it was just like, yeah, no, nobody, nobody has, um, that much of a vested interest in, 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 uh, you know, Build, you know, making these documents just to deceive me. Like this is glaring me in the face evidence. Um, and my sisters, um, coming out and telling me that all three of them had been abused. Um, and my, you know, my sister, Rachel, she'd been abused up until she was, I think 16. And so it was, and, and I was, I remember as a kid seeing Rachel and seeing her avoid my dad or being angry at my dad. And I couldn't understand why. But all of a sudden it was like, bing, makes perfect sense. And that's um, what I think is I, so beautiful about what you're doing, because what we do know about shame, right, is that it kind of festers in secrecy. and It does. And you speak out, first of all, and then you find out that you're not alone, and that can be really healing. And as we know, he left a lot, a lot of victims. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um no, I, I mean, it, it's obviously it's, it's going to probably be a lifelong battle. Hopefully it gets um, less and less of a battle as time goes on. But no, it is still, it is still a daily battle and it still affects everything. Um, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've, I feel like I've learned, um, you know, I, I was in there, you know, we had the missionary thing. So we always kind of had to put a face on like everything was okay. Um, and it was like, we were, we were, um, we were conditioned to, to confess, but to keep our confessions very private. 
and to not even um, confess. Like I couldn't confess to my mother. I was afraid to let her know what I was feeling or thinking. I had to go confess to my dad or um, these these men that he tried to force on me to confess to. Um, so it, it was, uh, e- even in there, we had to try and, you know, keep a, I, I don't know what the term is, a stay face or something. Um, we, we had to try and keep this face up of, of, uh, you know, everything was good. We were, you know, the prophets kids, we were, um, you know, we were an example to the rest of the community of how a perfect priest of family should be. And so there was always that pressure to, to, so I kind of learned how to do that in there. And I feel like I, um, I, I transferred some of that ability, what I learned in there, to to being out here and being able to share my story a bit. So. Yeah, that's brilliant. And and I want to end with more of that. So I don't know how much time you have. Do you have more time to talk about Texas and then have, getting out? Yeah, as much time as you need. Okay, yeah. So let's let's come back to that because I have I actually have a lot of questions about that because it's I mean I I saw you right when you were out at like a holding out help thing I think. And then um, just to even see you in the few years, you're just, it's, it's, it's pretty rad. And I think that it's awesome that you have so much resiliency and you have all these strategies, but let's, let's get into that at the end. Cause I want to end on a good note, but talk to me about Texas. Yeah. What happens when you arrive there, your experiences there and let's go from there. So, so 2006, um, was, uh, uh, to be exact, it would have been, um, I think right around my mom's birthday, which is uh, August 10th, I think, of 2006, out of the blue, my dad calls and he's like, well, actually, I have to back up two months because two months previous, he had said, the Lord wants you to come to Zion. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Like, so we went and we like got everything packed up. We were literally about to start loading our stuff in the car and he called back and he said, you weren't fervent enough. Like you lost your fervency or something like that and you can't come. And like, I was like, oh my God, like I was crying. I was just like asking my mom, like, what did I do? And I was just like sitting there trying to figure out. Um, like, did I let the vacuum handle get too close to my dick? Like, what? <laughs> sorry, the language. <laughs> no, you're good. How, I, old, I was are, just how like, old were you at this time? I was, I was 14. I was just like analyzing like what, what I had done wrong or I just try to sit, you know, right, you there has to be something cause it has, there to, be has something. to be something. And my dad called back and he says, he says, um, the Lord will reevaluate your situation, but. I need you to promise me that you will no longer touch yourself. And that, I guess that was another term, moral or personal morals and touching yourself. And so I, I said, okay. And so two months later, you know, after I had just been like all kinds of fervent and like, you know, it, it was ridiculous. Like you, it, it was almost like, um, like I'm not generally, I'm not an OCD person or I wasn't back then, but now it affects me a lot still. Like it, he forced me almost to become like this, this OCD person where I was like questioning everything I did. I was all of a sudden like, okay, did I think an evil thought just now? And then it's like, and then it went into like, did I wash my hands? So I go back and wash them. And then I've, 
it, it was so weird to me. Like I was just like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I mean, looking back now, I was just, it was just crazy to me how, how me trying so hard to be perfect forced me into like this, this OCD, um, this, which I'm not, I'm not generally, I mean, right. that kind of a person. But, but clearly uh, your father is, he had a lot of scrupulosity or religiosity yeah. and, and there's no bar, right? So he keeps changing the bar. So you're like, well, this is what perfect looks like. I'm going to hit all these things. And then he calls back and he's like, actually, you forgot about this and this and this, and just keeps moving that bar of what yeah. righteousness is. It's, it's like every, it's, 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 it's like, you know, a cat looking for a laser dot. It's, it's. Yeah, it was just, it's like the, the bar keeps getting higher and higher. And Did you have any doubts as a kid? Did you doubt at all as a kid? Doubt. Your faith. Would, oh, no, no, no. I didn't, I didn't, the, the first time um, I, I really um, was, uh, was kind of experienced my doubt was in Texas years, years later, back in 2009, I think. But no, we didn't, we didn't doubt. We were constantly, I mean, we were so scared of doubting. <laughs> so, it makes me laugh now because it's like, you're supposed to have a testimony that's so strong. It can't be persuaded by any, you know, any sort of deception. But at the same time, we're living in this deathly fear that our testimony was going to be persuaded by deception. <laughs> it was, it was a, it was kind of an oxymoron that I, I mean, even back then it didn't make sense to me, but, um, so two months later he called me and out of the blue, he didn't tell us where we were going. He just says, pack your stuff up. You're leaving. Um, and we, we had, uh, we, we were living in Albuquerque, New Me well to Harris, New Mexico, which is just east of, uh, of, uh, Albuquerque. We were living there um, in a secluded place, and we we get on the road, and um, they they pull out these trainings. This this I think it was a gosh to be exact I don't know a ten hour training, ten or twelve hour training, just straight all the way there. We had to listen um, on the way to Texas. And it was like my, the, our driver who was actually my cousin, he wouldn't tell us where we were going. I think my dad called us on the way and like, I don't know, 10 or 15 miles out, we finally found out that we were going to Zion. And I was just like, I was in panic mode. I was just like, Oh crap. Oh crap. Oh crap. Like, am I good enough? Am I going to go? And then I'm in, am I going to get sent back? Cause my dad was constantly telling us if you get sent back, then you you like lose your blessings, you like lose your place. This is a massive condemnation. I was deathly afraid of getting sent back, and I didn't feel like I was prepared. Anyway, we get there, and you know I hadn't seen any of my siblings for two and a half years, um, so I didn't recognize anybody. Um, I was fourteen by now, and most of my siblings I hadn't seen since I was eleven. So. I guess that would have been more like three years since I hadn't seen most of them. Um, and I hadn't seen my dad either um, in two and a half years. Um, so I, I get there and there's all these, there's all these girls in the house, like not, not my dad's, but like, so, you know, one of them I'd gone to school with. 
and some of them that were in a couple grades younger than me. And I was like, what are all these girls doing here? And they're like, they're our mothers. And I was like, what? Like, I went to school with these guys and that one's kind of a bitch. And, <laughs> and, um, so I, that took him, but then it was just like, oh, cool. Girls in the house. Wait a minute. And so when you say they're your mothers, that you don't mean that they were his ladies, meaning his wives. They were, they were, they were his wives. Oh, he, so, oh, okay. So now so, all of a sudden these girls that are younger than you are your that mothers. Are younger than me or I had gone to school with and I hated in school. They, they were all of a sudden my moms and I had to respect them. <laughs> so, okay. Wait, and talk about this though too, because you had been segregated now by uh, sexes at this point. And so now you're interacting with these these girls well, no, your age. I couldn't, that, that's the thing. I couldn't interact with them. I just saw them from a distance. So, so I saw them from a distance. My, but my dad told me under no circumstances do you go in any part of the house except for there was a, the, uh, there was a downstairs that was a boy's wing. And he says you can go from the boy's wing over to this, this kind of rec room area, this um, living, living area where the boys would eat and stuff. He says, you can go from there, uh, the boys area over to where the boys eat. And that's it. Like you can't go upstairs. You can't go in the kitchen. And, and I'm like trying so hard. I remember my dad walking into the room. Um, and it's been two and a half years. He, he called me and my mom up and my mom was with me all this time, pretty much, you know, except for back in all four, um, for a couple months. But he called me and my, my mom up and, we're, we're just sitting there like, you know, feeling like we're about to see like Jesus or something. Um, no, like literally we thought we were about to see God pretty much. And, um, he comes walking in and I'm like sitting there like trying to not think bad thoughts. And I'm just like astounded and, you know, in awe because I hadn't seen him for so long. And, and, you know, just cause I figured he, you know, he told, you know, I was just like, yeah, he can read my thoughts. So I'm like, trying to like think of the carpet and chairs and stuff rather than like <laughs> boobs and butts. <laughs> and oh, I'm so sorry. I you're so great. This is what I love about it because I think I understand this as an LDS girl because we had prophets and I know the dynamic is a little different, but I'm sure outsiders would say, how could you revere your father so much when he was so awful to you? But really it's hard to explain this culture that we have with the prophet. And you just said it perfectly. Like you thought because he played all these mind games and this is how he maintained control. You thought he could read your thoughts. You thought he was well, really special. Well, and the funny thing that occurred to me and it didn't occur to me till, I don't know, maybe two years. And I mean, I've been out for three years, so it was just recently um, within about a year and a half or so it occurred to me, I was writing to my dad weekly. I was writing to him weekly and I would send him 12 page letters sometimes like literally spilling my guts on my thoughts. And I mean, obviously it's up for, you know, I don't know. You know, he, he, I'm pretty sure he read at least some of them, but um, it was like, it finally occurred to me. That's how he knew because I literally thought he knew what I was thinking. And he did because I told him and it was, it was, it was just really, it, it, it finally hit me. That's why he, he had that, that kind of um, power over me 
was because I had told him, I was constantly telling him and he would say, write to me once a week, tell me every, like confess and all of this stuff. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how he, um, that that's kind of how he, you know, exerted power for me. But at the time that didn't even occur to me. I was just like, yeah, he's the prophet. And he'd spent years telling me, you know, exactly what I was thinking because I had told him what I was thinking. Yeah, but. that's such a great way t- to say it. And Warren was having everybody at this point write confession letters all the time, weekly. And so people thought the same thing. Wow, he's really discerning. And yet people, so I, I've talked to people who said that they started making stuff up in their letters because they didn't know what to write about anymore. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, uh, he, he'd say write and confess and you're just like, Okay, like either I need to go sin or it's, <laughs> it's like I, I'm out. Like I'm out. Well, um, it's that but, whole don't think of an elephant, right? You're like not supposed to sin. You're supposed to be overcoming this, this, these problems. And yet he's asking you to literally think about them all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's kind of what, what when, you know, eventually, you know, what kind of brought me to leave was it was like, I'm spending so much time thinking about sex because he's talking so much about not thinking about sex. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was, was this weird dynamic of these young girls being your mothers now that are forbidden. And as we know, forbidden fruit becomes even more tempting and, I, it's just, it's so like you really did live in sort of this hotbed of all of the worst things people could do with human behavior with shame. Like, you know, he's like a wizard of shame. I don't know what that's about. (laughs) It it was. And and I guess kind of the reason I brought that up is so I was there, um, in, in Texas and this was three weeks before he got caught. Um, and he, he was there too. And he would come down and check on me. And by the way, we, when, when we, when you go to Texas, you have to sit there for, I don't know how, however long it takes. It's between two and four weeks. Um, you have to sit there day in and day out, like literally. And I mean, literally, you have to sit there in a room, listen and follow along on transcripts to my dad's teachings for four weeks on end. And it's just day in and day out. You wake up, you go eat or, you know, all the religious stuff. And then you go turn on trainings and listen all freaking day. And you're like, Zion kind of sucks, man. Well, no, I, I was falling asleep like crazy. My dad's voice just put me to sleep eventually. Apparently, like they say that his voice is very hypnotizing. Um, but I don't know. For me, it just put me to sleep. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely now, see that. It it's... Me, now it just give me nightmares, but <laughs> back then yeah. it just put oh. me to sleep. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, okay. So, I, and while we're at it, I have to ask, what is your father's obsession with making all the buildings look like LDS ward houses? What's that about? Do we know? Uh, Was Texas like that with the carpeted walls and... Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, I don't know. That is one thing because I did go to one LDS church with a girl that I liked. Um, that ended very abruptly. Um, <laughs> but I went into a church and I was like, oh, did it my end abruptly because you're like, hey, it's like being at home. I was just like, I- I'm out. Like, I'm out of here. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> because goodness. It- 
It, it felt so much the same. Um, but yeah, n- now that you mention that, it, it is. And I don't know. I don't know. Um, it, I mean, th- that that the way those houses were built, it kind of started um, a little bit with the addition up here in Salt Lake. The addition up here in Salt Lake was like that, where I had carpeted walls and stuff. I mean, now it's all torn out, but um, it was like that a little bit. It became more so with that house, that south house. And then um, the ones in Texas were, were uh, we were like, oh, my gosh, these places are so nice. It's like, you, no, they're not. Like it, It's, <laughs> it's uh, like it's nice if you value early 1990s pastel LDS Ward house. Well, so. yeah, pastel and just like boring um, uh, woodwork. I mean, sure, some of the woodwork was okay, but it was just like, oh my god, it was. And they were all the same. There wasn't any any sort of uh, you know artistic um, touch to it. It was all the same, just kind of blah. Now, but, did you did you get to go in the temple? What were the FLDS rules about the temple? Because obviously, the LDS, you have to be. You have to have your endowments out. You can go at age 12 to get baptisms for the dead in our font, but you really have to be an older, like 18 or 19, to get your endowments out to go through the rest of the temple. So what's FLDS temple rules? Um, So, see, and that's the thing that we never, ever found out. Um, Because, I mean, so at this time, I mean, I was 14. I, you know, just found out that there was a temple. I had no idea. The thing had been built while I was in hiding. I had no idea that thing existed. But by the time I got there, it was all built. And basically, my dad was like, you can't know. You oh, So you have to be a temple worker to be able to go inside the temple. Um, temple builders could build the outside of the temple. They couldn't go inside. Temple workers could go inside. Um, but we couldn't know. And he says, he says, if, if anybody reveals, if basically he says there are people that are ordained. So I guess you were ordained, ordained to be a temple worker. Um, and there were people that were ordained, but if they revealed that they were ordained, that was an automatic, um, you'd lose your place. You'd lose everything. If you told anybody that you were, so the people that could go to the temple couldn't reveal that they had that privilege. Um, and as far as what went on in there, we were just told it was tops in, well, I mean, you couldn't say tops, basically we were told it was sacred. It was so sacred that, um, you couldn't know. And if anybody ever told, um, people what went on inside the temple, um, they would lose their place forever. They'd go to hell basically. Um, so that, that's what we were told, um, and I never found out. I never went in there. And I really kind of want to go down there and just like take a selfie. And okay, if you go, bring me with you. We'll road trip I should, it. I should. I just want to take a selfie. Can we like, not listen to four yeah. like the whole way to your dad's voice though? Let's not do that. No. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so no did way. you have any friends in Texas? What was that like? Well, so um, yeah. Well, well I, I mean, there was a couple of times I was there. So I was there. Um, for three weeks, um, like I said, I'd finally been, um, somehow become worthy. Anyway, um, I, I told my dad that I was being tempted towards these younger wives that he had, um, you know, because I was all kinds of deathly afraid of condemnation. First of Um, all, your honesty, man, like (laughs) 
I want to like go hug the 14 year old you and be like, Oh, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm just like, learn to lie a little, <laughs> but see, I was so scared. I was so scared to lie because he would tell us all the time. He's like, he would, he would go back to the, the story of Peter in the Bible and the, and the, the man and wife that came up and lied to him and he struck him dead right there. And so he, he would say, this is what you're facing. If you lie to me, if you lie to me, then God is going to tell me and your condemnation will be far greater. Um, and, you know, you know, in, in extreme cases, it would be like what happened in Peter's time. Um, so I was definitely afraid of lying to him. So I and I and I was very honest. I was very honest. And it wasn't until, I don't know, six months before I left that I blatantly lied to even to uh, to Lyle. So it was I was very blatantly honest. And I and so I, I said, look, I'm, I'm being tempted towards the, the these uh, these girls. I mean, obviously I said wives, even though they were like 11, the youngest one that was there was 11, uh, Marianne. And so he, he pulled me aside and he said, my wife, those are my wives. They're not yours to look at. They're not yours to touch. They're not yours to think about. He said those three things to me. And I was just like, Oh God, you know, big old rebuke for my God. You're like, I know that's why we're talking about this. And I was just like, oh, crap. And so I'm like, and, and then he said, as a, as a punishment, um, because I was feeling this way, then he actually knows after he left, he called back and he said, the Lord told me, and I had wrote, written to him and says, like, I'm basically like, I'm thinking about like these women's shapes and all this stuff. <laughs> I was way too detailed in what I told him. But I, and so he called back and he well, says, but really quick in your defense, I mean, I appreciate that we're laughing about this cause, cause you're fun and, and it's fun to, you know, kind of make light of such a heavy thing. But right. in your defense, he had really groomed you to be compulsive in your honesty. Like that wasn't, that wasn't on what? accident. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He had very much groomed me. <laughs> I, okay, I'll, I'll try not to laugh because it's just funny to me now. But you, you uh, can laugh, you can laugh. <laughs> this, it's, it's totally fine. It, 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 it was, and he, he had like it. It was a. Uh, I, it still baffles my mind, like how I mean, I became very OCD in in honesty. Like I was, I, I mean, I would sit there and just grill my mind, like you know, trying to analyze exactly what I had thought. And I mean, like, I don't, I don't think I have any of the, no, actually, I think I do have some of the letters that I, that I wrote, but it was, it was like, I, I would sit there and I, I mean, let's see, I'm, I'm just trying to think of like an example of like, so say I put this, this, this phone, I set this phone down and I set it down in line with the edge of the counter. But actually, in reality, it was a little bit turned. I would be like, I just need to confess in my previous letter that when I set the phone down, it was actually a little bit turned. It wasn't straight with the edge of the counter. Like, that's how detailed I got. It was crazy. And so it was 
it, it baffles my mind how how detailed um, how detailed I became, but that that's ultimately what what allowed him to control me very well. Um, so he called me back or called back, and in front of uh, five oldest sons, he says, "All of you are having bad thoughts towards my wives, and one of you is thinking about how to touch my wives." And I had written to him and told him, like, I'm thinking about, about your, you know, like the, the mothers and like, you know, their shapes and whatever. So he, he, and so I had told him, so that's how he knew. So that was my first experience of him in front of other people telling me that I was like guilty of this horrible sin. Um, well, he said one of you, and then he had the rest of the boys go, had me stay there. And he says, you're the one, which, you know, now the other boys knew that I was the one anyway. So now he says, so I don't want you walking through the house to go over to where you eat. I want you to go outside and walk in from the outside. I don't want you in any part of the house except for your room and where you eat. And that lasted for about a week. He got caught that weekend and he he called back. And within the first call from prison, he called back. And this was my first experience of like in front of the whole family. He calls back and he says, one of the first thing he says is, I want Roy um, to leave. I want him to leave. And I've only been there for three weeks. I was devastated because I was just like, yeah, this is like all my fault for like thinking bad thoughts. And he, he publicly in front of the whole family said I, he wanted me to leave. And that was when um, that was when I got taken from my mother. Didn't see her for almost two years. Well, a year. So and when half. you say taken, where do you mean that you went? So middle of the night, um, taken uh, up to Wyoming to a remote ranch to live in an RV trailer. I was not allowed contact with my mother um, for several months. Um, she would, she would write letters to me, but as far as like, um, talking on the phone, couldn't do that for, I, I think I talked to her after like eight months of being separated, something like that, but shipped me to a, a, a ranch that was, I don't know, 40 miles west of Wheatland, which is 70 miles north of Cheyenne. So, and Wyoming has 500,000 people in the whole state, so you can imagine it's just out in the middle of nowhere. So I lived there for, I don't know, nine months and lived in a trailer, told I couldn't go into the house um, because there were women in there. Um, so I lived in an RV trailer, um, sometimes with no heat in the middle of Wyoming winter. So I got dang cold. <laughs> the toilet froze up. I couldn't use the bathroom. And did you have a caretaker? Uh, Were you being watched? I, I did. Um, but the caretaker, he had, he had his family there so he could, um, opt to go in the house and stay in the house. So he would go in the house, stay inside. And I just stay outside, um, where my trailer was all froze up and um, like I, I remember one night calling them and I was like, I'm out of propane. Will you guys please give me some propane so I can have a heater on tonight? And they got back and I was like, where's my propane? They're like, oh, oops, we forgot it. And I was like, yeah, I kind of need to stay alive tonight. 
So they, like, I, I remember putting a huge fire risk, by the way, <laughs> but I put like a, it, it was cold enough that I put like a, uh, I put a, uh, heater right by the blanket where, you know, normally it seems like it would have started a fire, but it didn't cause it was that cold. Um, I was, you know, right under the blanket and I had to put the heater right up against me to stay warm because I did have electricity. And so this is, I just want to point this out because, uh, he had a pattern. Warren had a pattern of doing this to young boys and young men, sending them off to trailers in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's stories of one of the gentlemen that I know was trying to burn rubber that he found from old tires to stay warm. Um, it's, it was a sort of really cruel banishment. And plus, you have all this added sex shame over the top of it, this narrative of, first of all, you're a kid that's been isolated from someone from the opposite sex the entire your entire life. And now that you're finally with kids your own age, it's a completely natural response is now you're being punished and living in the trailer in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was very miserable. It was very miserable. Um, what did you I, do to, to keep time? What did you do? Well, so my dad wanted me to do school and my caretaker was supposed to do school, but then we ended up getting some cows and I ended up having to milk them too. So while I, I mean, I'm 14 at the time and the caretakers, because I was there and, and I like, I'll, uh, I'll still, I'm still pissed at the, they were my cousin, my cousin. I'm still pissed at them because <laughs> they were, they were too lazy to get up and milk the cows. So I'm 14, I'm living in a trailer and so I'd have to truck down through two feet of snow sometimes every morning at 4 a.m. and um, milk the cows. Um, so that's kind of where I quit doing school for a while. And um, that's kind of what I did to pass the time was just we, we spent a lot of time just milking cows and, you know, keeping them up to health and feeding them and everything. And then basically they take the milk from the cows and they would transport it. <laughs> and the way they transport this milk is so funny because it was like it was a freaking drug deal. <laughs> so they pull up in this parking lot and they like scat it out to make sure there's like no cops. And they like pull up in this car parking lot side by side and just like, you know, kind of secretly hand the milk to each other. <laughs> Okay, I love this, though, because this is, like, one of the things I love about the FLDS. Like, they do their farming, like, hardcore. Like, when I was down there and um, we got a, I was like, I just really want some FLDS bread. And the woman was explaining, like, how they harvest the yeast off of all these plants that are local. And I'm like, this is this is pretty hardcore stuff, you guys. Yeah. Take this yeah, seriously. Well, yeah, no, we were we were all about um, uh, uh, all about self-sufficiency. But I just thought it was funny how how we, how, how they transported the milk. But, Cause basically we, we were kind of the dairy and we would milk the cows and then we would send the milk out to other houses of hiding. We, I had no idea it existed or I didn't know where it was getting sent. But, um, so basically I lived in Wyoming, they transported down to Denver and you know, they would, they would act like it was a drug deal. Like they were being all secret. Um, and it wasn't, I bet it, I bet it made people feel really important. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We, we felt all kind of, well, I didn't get to do it, but the caretakers felt all kinds of important and trustworthy, but it was more about, 
it wasn't so much about the milk as it was, um, you know, being in hiding and, you know, um, might, you know, we were scared of being discovered by the law and all of that, um, all, all of that, uh, fear mongering that, uh, that, uh, that he used to manipulate us. But that, uh, that, that was my, um, basically went from, uh, there to Texas to Wyoming and, and uh, I, I guess, I guess I couldn't, I would have to say this was my first time. This was actually my first time when I had just a little bit of doubt because I had just started masturbating again. And, um, you know, I thought I was like going to hell. I remember like taking like the long underwear off for the first time. And like, um, I, and then I put my, uh, my clothes on with just like briefs and, I, I walked outside the trailer and was talking to the caretaker and I was like, Oh my God, he knows, he knows that I'm not, I'm not wearing underwear. Like, like the long, long garment. Yeah. The garment. And I was like, Oh my, it felt, I, I felt so naked. It was crazy. You know what? That's a very common thing. I think for any Mormon that takes off the garment, even if they're not the long ones, I totally remember that feeling. So, and yeah. you think, and you think everybody can see, right? Like everybody can notice. Oh yeah. I was just like, and I'm wearing like long sleeve shirts and, you know, everything. And I was just like, uh, I felt so evil. And I started listening to radio. And of all things to listen to, I listened to, <laughs> I listened to Glenn Beck. <laughs> well, I mean, you're in Wyoming in a trailer. That makes sense. It's That's the only channel <laughs> I can find. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So, the, okay. I have to ask. As an FLDS kid who's trying to get back in his father's favor, uh, living in an isolated trailer in Wyoming, how does Glenn Beck sound to you? Does he sound right? Does he sound a little edgy? I mean, how do you experience that? Well, so I just was like, yeah, these guys are like, they don't have revelation. Like we have revelation. They don't know that like, you know, the destructions are going to happen and um, you know, all of, it was, I was just like, I, you know, he was talking about George Bush or something and, um, that some, I think a fence down on the Mexican border or something. I don't know, but, but in a way he kept you company. Uh, yeah, yeah. In a way. Cause I, whenever the caretaker would leave, um, then I would turn, turn on you. I think, I, I don't think I, I may have listened to Rush Limbaugh a little bit. I remember I, I would explicitly like every time they went to break um, where I would turn on some, you know, we called it Gentile music. Then I would um, then I would like turn it off because I didn't want to hear too far. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, because it was like too hardcore. I was like, um, you know, I'll just I'll just like listen to these guys talk. So and I'll turn it off when the music comes on, because my dad says, you know, like if you listen to the music, then it will like get stuck in your head. And it does like <laughs> some of it. I if mean, it's a that's song, what music does, right? If it's a good song, it'll get stuck in your head. But I was just so deathly afraid of it, like polluting my mind that I, you know, I was like, which is ironic because I'm like listening to a Gentile talk, but I don't dare listen to like a, a soundtrack with, with a drum beat. <laughs> yeah. <It's> so fascinating. <laughs> it, it, it was, uh, it was, it, it was my first experience of like just, you know, openly um, um, listening to the radio um, and which was, you know, just talk radio with that. Um, 
And so, so I mean, I've I, done I imagine that. you listened to your father's voice for so many hours. This would seem like a natural kind of, you were sort of primed to listen to talk radio. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm, I was what 14 and it was, uh, it was entertaining to me, I guess. I think I actually, I think I actually, um, I think I found like this thing that, that tuned into some TV channels or something. It was like an undercounter DVD player or something. And I listened to some of Judge Judy too. So I, I, I did um, dabble a little bit in some of that. <laughs> you were getting a really interesting view of the outside world, I think, with those. Well, yeah, yeah, I was. And, and I remember just like keeping it to myself and being like, oh my God, I'm such a sinner. And um, so I had done that. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, my dad um, sends a message through Isaac, my uncle Isaac, and said, uh, the Lord wants you to go to uh, South Dakota. And my dad was like, you know, I'm just really proud of, you know, everything you've done. You know, this was the first time I'd ever got a compliment from him. And I was like, this is why I had doubt. Cause I was like, wait a second. I just like started masturbating. I've been listening to the radio. I went without my long underwear on. All of a sudden he's like, um, called me, complimented me on pre, you know, my, my fervency and all of this stuff. And says, I want you to go to the land of refuge in South Dakota. And I was like, wait a second. Like, you're supposed to know all this stuff. Like you're supposed to be the prophet and be able to detect, um, like, you know, and so that was my first experience with doubt. Um, I was just, then I was just kind of like, Oh, I'm sure it's nothing, blah, blah, blah. And so he shipped me to, um, uh, South Dakota where, and that was my first experience. Um, which, which, uh, that was probably one of the most terrifying experiences for me because this is the first time he put me with a crew of like 20 guys and I, I was, I was really scared and my, my worst fear in life was, was, um, being separated from my dad's family or or being like publicly not being able or not being worthy to be with his family. Um so that was my worst fear and I remember like on the way there I was just like, you know, I just hope so much that, like I get to stay at father's house and well, um no. He had a bunch of wives there and my actually my sister there. My sister from my mother was there. Um and he he says I don't want you to um, come. I, I I my under I, from what I remember he said I don't want you to come in come within like three hundred yards or three hundred feet of the house. Um. So now I'm like living. I had to live with uh, Stephen Harker, who was the bishop up there. Had to live with his family, um, which was which was one of my worst fears. So years before, when I was back when I was 12 years old, my dad had called us and he said, the Lord has, um, the Lord has, uh, condemned some of my wives because, you know, they've been given greater light and they, you know, some, somehow weren't worthy or, or violated their trust or something. 
And so they lost their place. They're no longer my wives. They have to be resealed to another man. And he, he had said, he had said, if, you know, and he had said to like, and this included my mom. And he says, if, if you, if you don't prepare, then this will happen to you too. You will lose your place with me and I have to be sealed to another man and your children will have to go with you. And I was, I was 12 years old at the time. And I was so scared of that. I was just like, no way, no way that's going to happen. And so when he put me with Stephen Harker's family, in my mind, that was a step in that direction of being um, ousted from my, my father's family, not, no longer being considered my father's son. And so it, I, I had to live with Stephen Harker for um, the, the whole time I was there pretty much. And it didn't help at all um, that the I, I'm, I'm 14 year old, 14 years old. I'm put in this construction crew of 20 guys. And then they start teasing me that I am Stephen Harker's son. And it, they didn't realize how bad it was affecting me and how I'd go home and cry every night, um, just crying my eyes out. Cause I, I was just like so scared of it. And I thought it was going to happen. Like I was like, you know, next thing I know, my mom's going to have lost her place and going to have to marry Stephen Harker. And I was so scared of that. And they didn't realize, I, I mean, I would act up and give them a reaction. So they kept teasing me and it just, it just got worse. So I eventually actually requested to please be taken from that land. I, I, I went to my uncle Isaac and I asked him because there was always that option. My dad always did leave that out. He says, if you don't feel like you can be here, come tell me and I'll send you away, which was a condemnation. But I, I, I was just like, you know what? I would rather that than be around these people that are tormenting me. Um, and so I, I eventually went to my uncle Isaac and said, will you please like send me away? And in my mind, it was kind of giving up. Like I was just like, will you send me away? Will you send me to hiding? Like, I don't want to be here anymore. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah. And so he, my, my dad told me that I could be sent away, but he told me you still need to call Stephen Harker and report to him, which, and w once I left, um, I was just like, yeah, no, I just, I just didn't do it. So that was a, a really tough experience for me. And then I kind of went back and forth. My dad, oh, over all this time, this was, I think, about two years into everything. Um, my dad would not talk to me on the phone. He wouldn't let me come see him or talk to him on the phone. I could write letters to him. And finally, in December of 2008, so this is over two years after he had gone to prison, he um, he's asked to talk to me. So they have me, they ship me down to Texas. And finally I get to talk to my dad and I actually still have like the transcripts and stuff where, you know, and he was just like, you know, preaching to me and telling me like how to repent. And that was the message from him um, for the next like year and a half. It was just a constant. Every time I would talk to him, it was like, you need to repent. You need to like not think these thoughts and, and then he ended, you know, and then he started like calling um, 
basically he would call and the conversation would be heard by the whole family. You'd be talking on the phone, but it would be being broadcasted to, you know, 200 odd, you know, some odd people. And so that's when I, you know, just felt so freaking humiliated and I hated being at the house because my older brothers and not to not to um, diss them, but just to state the reality of it. Um, they they believed that I wasn't supposed to be there because when I had asked my dad if I could stay in Texas, then he said whatever the first presidency says. First presidency, uh, Merrill Jessup and Wendell Nelson said, we think you should stay here. So my brothers were like, well, father didn't um, name you by name to be here. He left it up first presidency. So that's not actual revelation. So you're not supposed to be here. And um, so it, that just kind of was, was the feeling among like most of my brothers. Um, and it felt like a lot of the family. And so... I finally got sent away to Short Creek um, in 2010, and while feeling simultaneously publicly humiliated again because it was a huge condemnation to have to go to Short Creek, being a part of the Prophet's family, I felt a, a big relief not being around the family anymore because it just felt like they didn't want me there. Um, and at the same time, I felt very humiliated because now I'm in Short Creek where there's, you know, several thousand people and they find out who I am. And it's like, wait, but you're supposed to be good enough to be in Zion. Um, and why are you the only son of the prophet that's, you know, condemned to be back? I don't, that's just the, the what was going through my mind at the time. Interesting. But, yeah. Okay. So, so. Obviously, it's so laced with shame. And at this point, you don't even need your dad to tell you what to do. You're sort of policing yourself, right? Yeah. But what happens well, from there? Well, well, no, I'm not placing myself. What do you mean by placing myself? <clears throat> no, like pol policing. Sorry, that's my Utah accent. Policing oh. yourself. Like you, you're, you're keeping yourself in line, right? Any part of yourself that says, maybe, you know, stand up for myself or whatever, there's always that other part of yourself, that dad's voice inside your head, your father's voice that says, nope, here's how we stay in line. Yeah, 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 that, that was definitely the case. And, and I, mean, I mean, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and I didn't, once I got sent to Shore Creek, um, kind of lost a lot of communication with um, him. I talked to my mom for, uh, you know, I, I usually talk to her once a week or so, you know, while I was in Shore Creek. Um, but as far as receiving messages and directives from him, that kind of ended um, when I went to Shore Creek because um, I was there with Lyle and he was just kind of like, do whatever Lyle says, because I was living with Lyle's family. And um, yeah, it was, it was uh, in, in a lot of ways, it was like, kind of self-policing but at the same time that's when I started to drift a bit and get curious um curious about a lot of stuff um and I mean it was off and on like he sent me he would he'd sent me out to work which is like another condemnation like it's it's like basically the as you know in in the doctrine and covenants it says that the the uh the prophet and his family are, are supposed to live off of 
the donations of the people. And um, so for me to have to be out there working was a huge condemnation because my, and my dad would use it against every time I heard from him. He says, you need to be, you know, like trying to become worthy to live with the family and not be out working like this. Um, and, you know, it's my fault that I had to be out working or um, be in short creek or anything like that. So he, he used that against me. But at the same time, some part of me wonders if he did that intentionally. Um, it didn't benefit him in any way that I left. Um, but it, 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 it helped me in so many ways when he did that because I started getting curious um, when he sent me out to work and, you know, started getting on the Internet more and started looking at stuff. I mean, down in Texas, he sent me away because I had watched porn um, down in Texas. And I had also looked at the videos of him saying he wasn't the prophet. Oh, wow. Um, and, and let me back up really quick. Something that surprised me is my view of the FLDS. I thought because, you know, they thought watching Finding Nemo was a sin that they would never, you know, look at porn. But actually, porn is a huge, very common thing for many FLDS people that they're sneaking in, just like just like in any other Mormon group. It's a big thing. But oh, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in how do you you actually Google your dad? How do you figure that out? So, so <laughs> just just um, a, a, a kind of a, a, a funny, um, funny thing here. <laughs> From the time I can remember when I first went into hiding in 2005, January 2005, my dad, um, he called and he told me, he says, under no circumstances do you ever get on the Internet, ever. Don't get on the Internet. Um, later that year, um, he, he, had, uh, he had told me, don't touch computers because I had <laughs> I'd gone into like, program files like like the the operating files of like wordpad or or something like that or, or notepad and i'd found like this um like like remotely sexually explicit picture and then i confessed to him that i found it <laughs> deep down in like the operating files of a computer because i was so desperate for some sort of action <laughs> so he had told me that i couldn't get on computers at all anyway so naturally in my mind i wanted to figure out what's on the internet and because he had told me so much don't get on the internet so i finally in texas i got a computer i got access to the internet without him knowing or anybody else and i went on there and i was just like oh i miss my dad so much um i'm gonna see if there's like any videos of him in prison Oh my so gosh, I, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You got on not to rebel, but because you missed him? Well, I, so I got on just to like kind of see what the internet was, how what it was like. Interesting. Um, but then I was like, oh, I miss my dad. I wonder if there's like any sort of connection I can have here. That's uh, also sweet, but it also is like, since we know where this leads. Oh my yeah, gosh. It, it's really weird. It's really weird. And like I would, I, I mean, like I Googled his name, but then I was just like super careful because I remember seeing a picture 
of the inside of the temple when I was down there. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I like covering my eyes. I was like, oh, shit, like I've gone to hell, um, you know, for seeing this picture of the inside of the temple. Um, because he had told us, like, if you if you see the inside and you're not supposed to, like, that's it for you. And I never confessed it. Well, no, I think I might have. Um, but so I, I Googled him. I Googled uh, videos of uh, Warren Jeffs in prison, I think. And first thing that popped up was those those videos of him back in 07 telling Nephi that um, he was no longer the prophet. And that William Nephi is Jeffs his brother. Nephi's his brother, brother. Nephi, my uncle. I was like, that. I was just like, because he followed all the procedure that it outlines in the Doctrine and Covenants. That when a prophet loses his authority or his um, priesthood, then the only power he has is to appoint another prophet. So he went through those procedures. And part of me was just like, yeah, like I have such a strong testimony. Yeah, 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 not, not true. Um, and this is fabricated. But then like a little part of me is like, well, what if it is? What if he actually did say this? And then it started to eat at me quite a bit. And um, that was my first experience of the Internet. And then I then I started like um, I, 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 I fixed appliances. I was like the appliance fixer down there in Texas. And um, I started using the Internet or justifying using the Internet to order parts. But then I would go out there and like look at, you know, YouTube videos and stuff. But. Um, another thing that it might be interesting um, to your listeners that I want to mention, and it might be a little bit explicit, but so I had no idea that the female anatomy was different than mine. Um, I had no clue. And just just as, as a, I, I don't know, I feel like that's, it, it's become pretty important to me that, you know, people, you know, receive sex, sex ed or whatever, um, just because of my experience. Like I had no idea. I heard the word pornography, um, kind of thrown around a few times in there. And I was like, what is that? So I Googled it, saw it, watched them. I was just like, oh my God, like that's how shielded I was. I had no clue. I had like, I had no clue. I thought female anatomy was the same as mine. And I had no idea what was under in their chest. Like I had no idea. That's so fascinating to me. No, I'm so glad you shared that because that would have never occurred to me. Like when you were talking <laughs> about, you know, noticing the shape of women, really you're only going off of what you can really see in those prairie dresses, which. Which is nothing. Which is I, nothing. I, I had no clue. I mean, I remember as a kid, like thinking that maybe girls like had their butts like so shut. I didn't know. I was just like trying to speculate like what, what I, I, I don't know. I was just what's I had no clue. So I'm 18 and I figure and I find this out. And um, yeah, it was it was just like a whole new world for me. It's <laughs> fascinating. It, it was it was crazy. And, but, so, and um, so you start doubting you doubt, you know, maybe some of the stories you've been taught about your dad. So what does that lead to? Well, and th and then it leads to me, um, obviously, as it was this cycle of like doing stuff, confessing, doing stuff, confessing, doing stuff, confessing. So I obviously, you know, naturally, I go and confess to my dad that I had watched pornography, that I had um, 
watched videos of him in prison saying that he wasn't the prophet. And then I was like, but I know you're the prophet. I swear, blah, 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 you know, super devotion. And so he calls and he says, you know, go to Short Creek. Like you, I appreciate you confessing, um, but you need to go to Short Creek. Um, you can't be around the family anymore. So again, get, you know, taken, taken away from the family. And then, I, I mean, I guess that's just kind of back to where I was before that didn't really kind of lost a lot of the communication with him. Sometimes, um, rarely I would get a, um, like a message from him. I remember actually talking to him twice when I was in Shore Creek and one time, it, it, was, it was really confusing to me because he was so adamant about not being around girls, not looking at girls. And I was working at the storehouse there, which is actually the, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, basketball court, I think, for the, the Canyon School District or something now, or the gym. I don't know. But... I I, uh, I was working in there, and there was a lot of um, young women that were my age, and you know, obviously, like just just how you know, being you know, feeling attracted towards them and stuff. And so I went to my dad with a legitimate. Que- I was just like, "What should I do?" Because this is where I was placed. I was placed. You know, Lyle told me to work here in the storehouse, where I'm constantly running into all these women. And also my dad said something to me. I was just like, what? He was like, well, it's probably a good thing because you're going to have to learn how to get used to it. And I was like, wait, what? Wait, what? You've been telling me all my life, don't even look at the girls. Don't even think about them. And all of a sudden he was like, yeah, you probably just need to like learn to get used to girls or, you know, being around them. I was, I was so confused. And then, you know, and then he went on to like grill me to try and basically tell me that I was guilty of, um, having a girlfriend. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, <laughs> like they won't even talk to me. <laughs> You're like, I just barely found out what they looked like for starters. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just a year ago that I found out that they didn't, they had different anatomy than I did. So that that went on for a bit. Um, eventually, he sent me out to work, um, which was the kind of the next to the ultimate, because the ultimate condemnation was 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 getting sent away, like sent away from being under like a, a, a priesthood um, uh, environment or priesthood directives or a priest caretaker or something. So he sent me out to work and. You know, and, and then it got to where it was like, I don't know, maybe every six or eight months that I would hear from him. And I'm like out here in the middle of, no- I mean, not in the middle of nowhere, but just out in the world. And that was my first taste of uh, freedom where, where I was just like, because, I mean, I was living or I was down in Tucson and I couldn't come back to Short Creek, but the rest of the crew could. So they would go back. I would be down in Tucson by myself. And I was like, huh, I should turn on the radio. So I started scanning the radio and um, fell in love with Taylor Swift. 
so mad when I found out. You and me both, pal. <laughs> I was I was so mad when I found out that she had millions of dollars and she was a superstar. I was so jealous. <laughs> like, why can she be my age and have that much money when I'm down here, you know, not even getting paid for the amount of hours I'm working? I was that was a whole um, emotional conflict I had to deal with. <laughs> but yes, I did fall in love with Taylor Swift there. And then I started like going to uh, movies. I did my, my first um, movie I watched. I went to the library and I, uh, I got a uh, man from snowy river. Um, that was the first like DVD movie I watched. That's a good one to start actually. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. I, I watched it a few times and then I was like, huh. And I started gra- grabbing random movies like Smith's and watched some pretty interesting movies. Um, and then I was like, okay, like I'm, I'm going to like go for it here. I'm going to go to a theater. And so I'm, I'm at this massive mall in Tucson, huge mall. Thousands of people and I'm um, you know, like scouting out the food court to make sure like nobody's following me um, because I was so scared of being caught. <laughs> and I'm like scouting out the food court, kind of sit on one side and just like, um, you know, hover. And anyway, so I run into the movie theater that was attached to the mall. I run into the theater and they're like, what do you want? And I'm like, I don't know that one. I had no clue. <laughs> I had no clue what the movie. I just wanted to go. I was just like, and I, I don't, I think it was, it may have been Fast and Furious. Um, sit, no, no, it was the Croods. It was the Croods. That was my the first cartoon? movie. The, what, cartoon, the cartoon show? Yeah, I think that was my first movie. I was just like, oh, I don't know, the Croods. And so they gave me a ticket. I went in there and um, I, I, that was my first experience in a theater. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> and it was it was it was pretty crazy. Then I then I uh, kind of got addicted every time they went out of town. It was like I'd wait for 20 minutes to make sure they were like, you know, a good 20 miles north of the house. And <laughs> then I would like go over to the theater. I would buy one ticket and I would spend all freaking day and I would buy one ticket and then I would just like walk out of one theater into the next. <laughs> I scammed them out of quite a bit of money, but um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I spent a lot of time there just doing, and that was just my first experience of being on my own nobody there to judge me. And I was, I felt so liberated. It was crazy. And so I, it just got to where I couldn't wait till they went out of town because, you know, I was by myself and, you know, nobody was there to judge me and I could, uh, you know, I could go drive around and listen to country music and I could go out and eat breakfast because you weren't supposed to eat out. Um, I could go out and eat breakfast at, um, the, the, uh, can't remember the name of the breakfast place, but um, so I started doing things like that. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I can go into a lot of detail. Um, to, I, I don't know. I just, what, what, I just think for time, since we're getting to the two hour mark, maybe just talk about how you got out. Okay. Okay. 
So, so long story short, I was out working. Um, he kept pushing me away. So Jan, Fe- February of 2014, I had waited partially in my mind. I had waited that long because my dad had made a prophecy that, um, that uh, a heavenly body was going to come crash into the earth at the end of 2012 or 2013. So I conveniently waited to February of 2014 um, in hopes that that prophecy would not come true, which it didn't. And um, so February uh, 10th, 2014, about 9 a.m., I, I, had, uh, I, I, I stayed there for a long time because I wanted to talk to my mom again. And up to this point, I hadn't been allowed to talk to her for two years. Um, and I'm still in there, haven't been allowed to talk to her or any other siblings. And I'd stayed around because I wanted to see her or talk to her again, but it just felt like the harder I tried or, you know, the more time went on, um, I just kept getting pushed away more and more. And I was never going to be prepared for this, uh, you know, apocalypse that was going to happen. And, so I, I, one morning, you know, this morning, February 10th, 9 a.m., I got on Expedia. Um, and by this time, I mean, I guess how I, I hadn't been getting paid for a while, um, demanded a paycheck. They finally paid me on condition that I donate my money. Anyway, I took the money, bought a phone. So I had I, on Expedia, I, I was looking for tickets just, you know, to, you know, anywhere. Um, primarily I wanted to like go to New Zealand because I was afraid of prophecies, uh, that my dad had made against the North American continent. Um, so, um, I, I did want to go there, but I was like, you know, for now I need to just go to like a U.S. city and try and get on my feet until I can get money to go to New Zealand. So I, uh, I, out of impulse, I was just like, I'm going to do this. Like, this is my moment. Like I found a ticket to Salt Lake city for 164 bucks or something. And I, uh, I was like, I'm going to do this. And I, I, I couldn't believe what I was doing, but I knew I had to do it on impulse because if I stopped to think about it too hard, I would talk myself out of it. And so I bought the ticket put my tools away. Um, and I'm in downtown Des Moines, Iowa. And I literally like, no kidding, took off running from the job site, ran a couple blocks through the mall, um, the mall in downtown Des Moines and called a cab for the first time in my life. Um, and got a cab back to the crew house, um, past the crew boss in the way on the way in. Um, uh, went in my room, locked the door, um, gathered my things and kind of just trucked my, I had the cab parked block away so they wouldn't know that he was there. And I packed my things up and trucked my, my belongings up a block or so and threw them in a cab and was just like, get the heck out of here. <laughs> and this was all on an impulse. So um, if I guess if there's anybody that listens to this that's thinking about leaving, try and have a plan first. Would <laughs> <laughs> be wise. But I didn't have a plan. So I got to the airport, hurried past security because I was worried that they were going to um, come after me, not in a threatening way, but in a, you know, trying to get me to stay. 
and I was very, um, I was very afraid. I wasn't, I wasn't um, prepared to confront people about how I felt. I felt like that if people confronted me, I would just, you know, give in really easy. And so I got past security, um, made a Facebook account and messaged my cousin, um, my, uh, Lyle's son, Zach. And it's like, Hey, I just left. He's like, Oh, cool. Um, where you at? I was like, I'm in Des Moines. He's like, so where you headed? I'm like, I'm headed to Salt Lake. And he's like, do you need a place to stay? And I was like, might be nice. <laughs> and so I landed with them for about a week, but I was, I was uh, terrified of being around apostates. Never mind the fact that I was one. I was terrified of being around, um, just being around people that had adamantly come out in opposition to dad my dad and because that was the ultimate that was the ultimate sin so and i pledged to lyle which i did and i left left their house and just started staying in hotels till i ran out of money and just kind of on my last leg um called uh holding out help and was just like you know, and I thought I was turning myself over to Satan. Like, I was just like, this is it for me. Because they, you know, told me that any help you try to get or anybody that offers to help you, they want something from you or they're trying to get you to turn against your dad. Like, that is everybody's motive. Anybody that you meet, that they, you know, try and get, they're trying to get you to turn against your dad. And... So I was just like, well, I, I don't know what else to do. Like, I'm going to die. Like, I, I can't get a job. I don't have a GED. I don't know how to get a GED. I don't know how to do any of this. And I was determined to not be around crickers because they were apostates. So I called holding out help. And, you know, I, I was threatening them, you know, like if, if you guys bring me to media or the FBI or all of this stuff that the FLES had promised would happen to me. I was just like going to be out of there. And even when I met them, like I like kind of held back and like scouted out the area to make sure there was no law enforcement or cameras. Um, cause I was very skeptical of that, but holding out help respected my um, beliefs very much. I didn't come to terms with who my dad was for months after, but that was, that was some of the loneliest times that I've had. Um, just after I left because I didn't dare talk to anybody, any apostates. But I mean, I remember hearing that my dad was sick and I thought that was my fault because I had left. And I was like, he's sick because he's sad about how I left. And I, I remember like, you know, holding a knife up to my chest, like just trying to get myself to um, stab myself. Cause I was just like, there's nothing worth living for anymore. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an apostate, like it's better that I'm dead, um, that, you know, that I'm, you know, here to, here to, um, you know, turn against my dad or advocate in any way against him. So I was, it was a very lonely time and it took a long time to just come to terms with everything, but, um, it was the best decision I ever made, best decision I ever made, even though. It still hurts, no, you know, not being able to talk to my mom or not knowing where she is. It's been five years since I've talked to her. And, you know, still, you know, I have no clue where she is. Um, 
and it's it you know it hurts but it's still it's the best decision i've ever made um coming out of there um and it's it's a it's definitely a hard 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 ride but um i mean it's like like i mean i guess you've probably noticed like i'm i'm a pretty liberal person now you didn't used to be (laughs) no no, not at all. And the thing is, is it, w- it was so much. Uh, and what I finally discovered is, is a lot of the way I felt was, was um, out, out of fear of, um, you know, you know, I was very much a conspiracy theorist and all that. But now it's, it's, you know, it finally hit me last year, I think, and I and I credit Donald Trump in a long, in a lot of ways for pushing me in this direction that I am now. Um, because it was, it, 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 uh, it, it just, it reminded me so much of, of being in there and having these baseless beliefs in, in a lot of ways. So now I'm, I am a pretty liberal person, but. Even more than that, though, like just the way that you tell your story is so compelling. And again, can, I'm going to tell you my first impression of you and you can tell me, um, if you want me to leave it in or take it out. Oh, I remember when I met you at the holding out help thing, um, I had never seen someone look so much like a victim in my life. And I, and I don't mean that as like a pejorative. I mean, like, here was a kid and you were a kid that looked like you carried your shame in your body, you know, like you couldn't look at us. And to see you now and to hear your story and just to hear you joke about it, like, and just to see you power through your shame and, and you don't have this toxic toxic masculinity culture that you grew up with you're just it's so inspiring to me like truly not only is it inspiring but it's damn fantastic is what it is and I I don't think I can overstate how far I've just like witnessed you grow from afar it's pretty cool I appreciate that it's it's been a it's been a tough road um but uh I mean like like that uh I mean I, I don't know I mean I've I mean, I'm, I'm 24. I mean, I've, I've been through, I've been through a suicide attempt. I've been through, um, and, and that's not, not talking about the knife situation, but that was, I've been through a whole different thing. Um, and because of that suicide attempt and all of those seizures, some seizures and medical issues that I had, I've been through bankruptcy already. Um, but come out on the other side and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It's been a huge learning curve. I'm glad to be here. Um, so have you had the chance to date yet or intermingle with those, those, uh, forbidden fruits, if you will, of, of <laughs> women? And I, I mean, I've tried, I feel like I screwed up in a lot of ways because I, I first started trying to date back in January. Well, no, I first started trying to date back in 2014. And every time I think about, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was on a date with her. It was like, no, you were just awkwardly hanging out. Like I didn't even talk to her. I was just like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I was so scared. I was just like, I, you know, so I, I wouldn't really clarify that as a date, but I really started trying to date in January, 2015. And I, I had no idea. I got catfished really bad, um, fell in love with this imaginary, you know, I have no idea. Oh my goodness. Mary in the basement. But I was just so vulnerable and I wanted somebody so bad that I fell for this catfisher and I dumped um I don't know two or three girls here in Utah because of that. 
so I, I kind of learned, um, well, I, I, I wouldn't say I learned that, but I, I kind of screwed up a few relationships that I could have had, but it's, uh, uh, no, as far as like dating, um, I'm a really hard person to get close to. Um, I've tried dating a few times, but I, I, I lock up really fast as much as I'm able to share here when it comes to, um, when it comes to letting people into my life and especially, um, letting like a, a woman or, you know, into my life that would be that close and intimate where, you know, they know, you know, how you feel and, and all of the, uh, you know, ins and outs of your life and stuff. It is, it, it scares me. It scares me bad. <laughs> so, no, that makes, I mean, yeah. that makes perfect sense, especially, you know, considering your history and how those relationships have been weaponized against you over and over. So that, that makes sense to me. Um, I wanted to ask you just two more questions and I'll let you go. Do you, um, do you resent the fact that some of your identity, even here tonight in the podcast revolves around your father? Uh, uh, so about, I would say not quite a year ago. Um, probably, I don't know, maybe six months ago. I was just like, you know what? I'm done with this. Like, I'm ready to move on. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to change my name. And, and I'll, you may have noticed, you probably didn't, I changed it on Facebook um, a couple of times because um, I was officially, and I got the papers, and I started feeling them, filling them out. But then it was like, you know, I started looking at pictures of my mom and um, pictures of the family because I was just like, you know what, like I'm, I'm giving this up. Um, if I, if I'm, you know, if I'm moving on, like this is, you know, this is who I'm. I feel like I'm giving up a little bit. And then it was just like, you know what, like I'm Roy, I'm Roy Jeffs. Like that's who I am. Even if I changed my name, then I, I'm still not going to identify with, um, you know with, you know, whatever family I take my name, take who, whosoever family I take their name, I'm still going to be me. So it's like, it's sometimes it's like, you know, I feel like, oh man, you know, sometimes I wish I just didn't have to talk about it. But no, I, I feel like I've been given somewhat of a tool um, to be able to talk about it um, because of who I am. So I don't, I don't, now I don't really um, count it as a negative thing or, or a wish that that um, part of my identity wasn't there. I'm, I'm pretty grateful for it because every chance I get, um, I like, you know, I like to, I like to share my story or get the word out there um, that, that, you know, things like this are happening or, or, or to people that are, you know, thinking about leaving. And obviously I'm an evil apostate, but if they do hear this, it will it will get into their mind a little bit. And and I want my story to be known because, you know, I, I was there and and this this is how it was. And I mean, if you were to go dig up the facts, my every bit of my story would corroborate it. And so it's it, it's uh, I don't know. I, I feel like it's a tool. I feel like it's more of a tool than um, any sort of negative impact on my identity as a person. I think that's beautiful. And and I think that does reflect it, especially in the way that you tell your story. And and just to what you said about your accuracy, you know, talking to the faithful FLDS, 
I asked them about Warren and they said, you know, well, he was set up and they know up, up until the Texas stuff, but they don't know why he's in prison. And I said, wait, you don't know that. And they, the room, like they cover their ears and they said, we don't want to know. Don't tell us. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, so tell me what you're up to now. What, what are you, what are you doing with life and what's keeping you busy? So, um, I pretty much don't have a life except for, I just work a lot. <laughs> um, no, I'm an, I'm an Uber driver in my, um, whatever spare time I have, I do that. Um, um, obviously, um, I'm pretty heavily involved at least, at least in, you know, in politics a bit. So I do, I, I mean, I mean, no, I, I'm not like in a campaign or anything. I, I just, that, that consumes a lot of money. Um, time it seems like, but um, my main my, I have a main job. Um, I'm building uh, radiation detection systems. It's it's been a really good job. I've you know got two promotions so far, and you know I've, this is the longest I've ever had a job, which is which is a lot um, because you know I've I job hopped quite a bit after I left. Um, I think I had uh, I don't know five or six jobs the year I left. So I finally got a good job where they treat me well. Um, and I, I, you know, growing with that company, um, I've still, still getting up to speed with school, but I am, uh, planning. My, my plan is to, uh, go to, uh, the university of Utah eventually right now. I am, um, um, I am in uh, solid community college, just getting my uh, general, education, but I am planning to go to the University of Utah to get my uh, bachelor's in computer engineering. So that's that's my long-term goal. Basically, by the time I'm 30, that's my plan is to have that degree. But right now, I'm just uh, finally got my own place because I like having my own place for some reason, almost like I've been isolated most of my life. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah, but this one has heat, so that's and, good. It's got heat. What was that? I said, but this one has heat, so. Yes, this one does have heat, and it has a nice bed in it that's not, you know, a couch like what was in that trailer. So, well, um, is there any way that folks out here can support you, or can they add you on Facebook? Are you private? Uh, no, no, they're they're welcome to add me on Facebook. Um, I'm just under Roy Jeffs, um, and uh, there's there's a I think there's an old profile and a new profile. Because my new profile had, I had originally had my new name that I was going to change it to. And I was like, yeah, no. But, um, so just Roy Jeffs. Um, and, um, as far as support, um, I, I mean, I, I, it's definitely a struggle, um, out here financially and everything. And I feel like I'm in a place where I, I can provide for myself, um, in, in, um, that, that sort of way. But, as far as as far as help, the biggest help to me would be helping people. You know, helping a, a nonprofits like holding out help um, and stuff like that. Because that's more than anything. That's my biggest concern is that people come out here and don't have some sort of support system. Because even though, I mean, um, holding out help in a lot of ways for me, just because of my situation, I'm a, you know I'm a single guy. They didn't have to, you know, support a guy with some kids or a mom with some kids. 
Um, but for me, it was just being able to emotionally be there and support me and provide counseling and, you know, be able to have a counselor on staff and stuff like that. That's been the biggest help for me. Like, I mean, they've given me like uh, they've helped me with fuel in my, my car a few times, I think back in 2014, but primarily that's been a big help. But for, for, for me, the biggest help for me would be to, to make sure um, nonprofits like that are able to um, stay alive and, and uh, you know, be, be funded well enough to um, help the, the influx of people that are leaving. Um, because that's that's my biggest concern is like mom, a mom with kids. And I've seen this with my sisters, like they come out and um, it's it's hard to especially for them. It's it's much harder than um, for somebody like me. So that that would be my biggest um, request of anybody listening. Well, thank you. And yeah, holding out help is great. We had Tanya on the podcast and I'll link to it again. And I would encourage everyone to donate. It is it's a great organization. I have sent people their way. I, I know the organization, how well they run. I know the board members, it's solid. So um, I don't want to keep you any longer because it's getting late. So just, Roy, thanks for being so awesome and for being brave <laughs> and telling your story. It's great. You, you bet. And I, I appreciate uh, appreciate everything. And I'm, I'm glad to, glad for the platform to, to talk about it and um, get the word out there and the awareness. So I'm going to take you up on the road trip, but you have to listen to some of my, my music. So <laughs> we got to do it. That's, that sounds good. I, I'm just dying to take a selfie in the temple down there. Yeah. We got to get down there, um, before, before they sell the property, if they ever sell well, the property. Well, so. I want to, I want to take the selfie and like, um, mail it to my dad. Just be kind of like, Hey, what's up? yeah that's good okay yeah i would love to be part of that so um we'll plan it okay roy well thanks and have a good night all right you too to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.